Greetings, this is the podcast coming from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, pastor of First Baptist Church, and I bring you Palm Sunday greetings. This coming Sunday, it may be hard to believe, is Palm Sunday. We have come through the season of Lent to the moment of Jesus's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And I'm thrilled to be with you today. I'm thrilled to be alive, uh, to think about the possibilities and what God has in store for us. I'd like to tell everyone that's listening, perhaps this may be your first time listening, a Palm Sunday would be a, a wonderful time to be your first time to join us, that we are uh, trying to be a church that is responsive during a time of great changes in our world. And uh, part of that includes that people are having a greater difficulty uh, coming to church, and we understand that. We understand also that there are those who long to return to church and are waiting for the moment when they feel safe enough to do so. Uh, there are those who are unable to come back because since the pandemic has started, their circumstances have changed to such a degree that they um, are just not really able to come back to a, uh, be present in a worshiping congregation. And to be quite honest, there are some who have simply fallen out of the habit of attending worship. Um, look, I understand that. I've been there myself uh, in times in my life. And you get up every Sunday morning with good intentions, but it kind of comes around to, well, next week I'll begin. Wherever you find yourself, all I want you to know is that you're loved by God and you're loved by the Christian community and you are part of the family. And so we want to be a support to you in the best way we can. This podcast is one of those ways. Uh, please check out our website. Now, I know some of you may have done that and go, well, it never changes. It's always the same thing. Well, uh, please understand that we're a small rural town church and uh, keeping up a website and Facebook and podcasting and doing the regular work of ministry is, well, pretty overwhelming at times. So we're doing the best we can, but we are always uh, interested in being part of your life. And so if you can think of a way that we might be able to do a better job at that, we're all ears. We really want to try to do that. And we'll have an honest conversation about what we can and cannot do. We are limited by personnel. We are limited by talent and we some things we just don't know how to do. And we're limited by finances. But that does not limit the gospel. The gospel goes on. Well, I want to share with you today, beginning out of Psalm 118, verses 19 through 29, which is a psalm directly related to the events that will take place in Jerusalem during what we have come to know as Palm Sunday. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. 
This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Apart from the resurrection, the most joyous moment recorded in the gospel story from the life of Jesus is the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus rides into the city of David, mounted upon the foal of a donkey, thus reenacting the entry of an ancient Jewish king. Not only was it a deliberate reference to the history of the nation, but it was also, in fact, a predicted moment. The people well knew the words of the psalm we just heard, O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches. Incredible joy filled the air. With cries of Hosanna, people poured out from their homes and shops to witness the arrival of Jesus, the now famous itinerant rabbi from Nazareth. His reputation had grown, even exceeding that of John the baptizer. John, of course, had predicted this moment. In his preaching, he had urged the people to prepare the way of the Lord. And now the moment had come. Jesus, by mounting the back of that young donkey, was announcing his coronation celebration was about to begin. Cloaks were laid to soften the path for his entry into Jerusalem. Palm branches were waved to cool the air. The king was coming. It was the top news story of the day, of the week, of the year, of a lifetime. Yet, at that very moment, Something else was happening in the temple city. Not everyone, you see, was pleased with the arrival of this prophet of nonviolence. The rabbi from Nazareth was not what the one for whom they were looking would be like. The Nazarene had said certain things and indicated by his actions that the kingdom of God would not be ushered in by an insurrection. Some, a minority to be sure, felt that violent takeover was the only answer. They wanted to foment a fuming mob who would take up arms to rebel against Roman governance. The proud zealots, many of whom came from Jesus' home of Galilee, had long since abandoned the idea that Jewish freedom and restoration of a righteous nation could ever be attained through persuasion. Another solution was required. If that solution required violence and killing, well, so be it. That was why when Jesus declared himself a man of nonviolence and likewise urged his followers to turn the other cheek, even to pray for their enemies, the advocates of insurrection lost interest in the Messiah in fact, they did, not, they did more than lose interest. They viewed Jesus negatively. They could see he had captured the imagination of the people. The masses were behind him. But would he fulfill their plans and instigate a violent takeover of the government? 
Would he lead an uprising designed to spark the revolution, a revolt against Rome? They reasoned against such overwhelming odds. Would not God himself be forced to act to save his people? The zealots had tried to bring about God's kingdom through violence. They got one thing right. The people were growing increasingly irritated with their heathen, Gentile, uncircumcised rulers. Everyone, it seemed, wanted change. Some sought change through political persuasion. Others thought it best if a religious revival took place. Perhaps increased devotion might change God's mind and get him to act. Still others thought that God had had it with a sinful humanity and would soon end the world. The Essenes retreated to the desert believing that the end was near. The zealots, though, were different. They were, in fact, terrorists. The general public had sympathy with their cause, yet were also conflicted. The philosophy of the zealots was also known as a, also known as the Sicarii or Daggermen, was an evil means is acceptable to achieve a good end. Of course, everyone wanted Rome gone, but the way of the zealots was instigating Roman retribution on the people. Because of the zealots' theft of weapons, their murder of Roman soldiers, and advocacy of open rebellion, everyone was suffering. The Romans, frustrated at capturing the actual zealots, just rounded up any Jews in the vicinity. For every Roman who died, ten Jews indiscriminately chosen would be killed. A decimation policy created an atmosphere of hatred and fear not only toward Rome, but also toward the terrorists. Many who perhaps agreed with the sentiments of the zealots also hated them for bringing a Roman death curse upon them. It was, like most things in war, quite complicated. This is information that provides meaning to the reading of the Bible in the background of the unfolding gospel story. Insurrections, or rather attempts at insurrections, were sparking. We can catch a whiff of this reading through the Gospel of Luke. A reference to a tragic event clue us in about the zealots and the poison fruits of their activities. In chapter 13 of Luke, it says, At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It seems that an incident had recently occurred at the temple in Jerusalem. Galilean zealots had done something to infuriate Rome. We do not know exactly what the spark was. A soldier stabbed, a looting of arms, a call to rise up and defeat the enemy, but whatever it was, it got the attention of the authorities. Consequently, punishment was meted out on all the Galileans that were there, regardless of their activity or actual involvement with the zealot thugs. Yet in the course of the brutal crackdown, some of the actual ringleaders were identified and captured. Wanting to make the most of this success, the Roman governor planned to make an example. Rome could never condone such an affront to her power. Everyone had to know of the folly of opposing Roman authority. These insurrectionists murdering thieves would be crucified. Furthermore, their execution would be held on a small hill located by the crossroads that were heavily trafficked by the festival visitors arriving at their holy city. Rome was going to show these troublesome Jews just who was the boss. Let's now return for just a moment to the triumphal entry of Jesus. At the same time, 
as he was passing into the walls of Jerusalem in a dark, damp cell sat three men, three zealot terrorists pondering their fate. Crucifixion awaited them. They knew all about the Roman cross. It was a painful, torturous death. Never a man was born for whom the prospect of dying that way would not instantly evoke horror and fear. History does not record the names of the condemned terrorists, save one. We may even be a bit surprised to learn what a lovely name he had. Yeshua Baraba, Jesus, Son of the Father, was the complete name of the only terrorist we have recorded. It is in all four Gospels. It is Barabbas. What's in a name? Well, in this case, his name was a fairly common one for a Jewish boy of that time. Derived from Joshua, Yeshua was a name that meant one who delivers or saves. It is his last name, however, son of a father, that interests me most. Why was Barabbas' father not mentioned by name? Perhaps the name of his father was not known. Maybe he grew up without a father. Maybe this fact started him on a life journey marked by resentment and anger. And then I wonder if perhaps, just perhaps, he was chosen from the condemned men, pulled from his death row cell because he too had the name Jesus. Maybe he was selected because he was considered particularly reprehensible and Pilate, wishing to release Jesus, suspected no one would choose Jesus Barabbas over Jesus Bar-Joseph. For sheer drama, the moment cannot be outdone. The crowd had gotten the word. Call for the release of Barabbas. Demand the crucifixion of Jesus. And what begged credulity and resulted in cruelty, Pontius Pilate did as the mob demanded. He turned Barabbas loose. Only a few moments before Barabbas was condemned, sure, he would die. And then, just like that, he was forgiven. His life of crime erased. To whom should he be thankful? Should he credit Pilate for seeking to appease the troublesome people of the province? Maybe he should thank the crowd for listening to their religious leaders and demanding his release. Maybe he should just credit it to amazing luck. I think, though, there is a better explanation and perhaps one that Barabbas found for himself before too long. His forgiveness was made possible through the man who shared his name. Jesus took the punishment for which he was destined. In the story of Barabbas, we might all find a point of identity. The Jesus he met that day died on the cross in his place. The demand for Christ's death was not God's. He allowed it, but he does not demand it. No, the cry to crucify came from the people. The cry for crucifixion came from the religious good folk who chose a murderer, a thief, and notorious troublemaker over an innocent man. Oh, how I wish I knew how the story of Barabbas turned out. Did he find redemption and a home within the Christ-following community that would emerge? Did he become obsessed with the man who saved him in spite of all he had done? 
Maybe it drove him the other way. Maybe he died, still confused, angry, and resentful. Perhaps he could never fully accept the gift freely given to him and instead was driven to the very brink of insanity we just do not know. What we do know is that in some way, we are all in his place. We are all Barabbas. And like Barabbas, we are offered a second chance. The Bible says we have all sinned and must face the consequences, but God has taken his place in the crowd and pleaded for our release. He has a face, the face of the Savior, the King of Kings, who arrived in triumph through the gates of Jerusalem. For his coronation, he wore a crown of thorns, and his throne lifted him high as he proclaimed to the ages, it is finished. Barabbas got a second chance, but he also shows us our second chance. We do not know how it turned out for Barabbas, but we know about his fellow insurrectionists. They were more than thieves. They must have been guilty of murders to be sent to their crosses on either side of Jesus. One we know never learned, never experienced forgiveness. He resented Jesus and joined in mocking him. But the other saw something. He knew he did not deserve God's grace. All he asked was to be remembered. Yet Jesus came for grace. He came for all of us. And to this man whose life of bad choices and bad luck had brought him to this moment, he promised, today you will be with me in paradise. It is, I think, the most moving story ever told. But it is not just their story. It is your story, too. You have the second chance offered to Barabbas. You have the choice of resentment or redemption offered to the dying thieves. And here is the thing. It is a daily decision. It is the choice you must make every day. Will you choose Jesus? Will you accept his offer of grace? Let us pray. Lord, just as Barabbas was offered a new start, so too we are offered your grace. Will it cause us to imitate you, to be forgivers, lovers of those most in need of love, willing to take up our crosses and follow you? Oh, Lord, we do so love you. We do so ask that you remember us. Thank you for your grace. In the name of our Lord Jesus, Son of God, we pray. Amen.